See, now that's a good spell. Send a horde of astral cats to claw through the chest and chew the hearts of your enemies. Nice. Welcome to a popular history of unpopular things, where we love all things gory, gross, and bloody disgusting. My name is Kelly Beard, and today I'm going to tell you a story about a countess who bathed in blood to stay young. This is the legend of Elizabeth Bathory. In my research, I've found that some people know about her, but others only know about her legacy. It's rumored that Bram Stoker used both her and Vlad the Impaler as inspirations behind his most famous book, Dracula. She was born in the mid-16th century in Hungary to a noble family that owned and controlled a significant portion of land, including Transylvania, which, of course, is the hotbed of vampire legend. She died alone, locked in her castle, charged with the torture and murder of anywhere from 60 to 600 young peasant and noble girls. Over time, though, her story has taken on a more supernatural turn, and it's said that she bathed in the blood of virgins and even drank their blood as a vampiress to stay young and beautiful. Growing up, I was very aware of the vampiric legend that is the Blood Countess. My first introduction to her was playing Diablo II with my brother, and one of the early mini-bosses was the immortal Countess, buried alive in her forgotten tower. This fictional version of Elizabeth Bathory was said to have bathed in the rejuvenating blood of over a hundred virgins, and though she remained trapped in her tower prison, she was still alive, orchestrating evil from within. My favorite band even has a song about her. It's called Elizabeth by Ghost, and in the song, they refer to her as an immortal, still alive in the castle of her death. That she made a pact with Satan and killed young virgins for her lust for blood and desire to bathe in it, keeping her young. So it's this, then, that has stood the test of time, that Elizabeth Bathory, a Hungarian countess, was a vampire, or at least a serial killer, that murdered potentially hundreds of young girls and either feasted on their blood or bathed in it to remain eternally young and beautiful. This is a gruesome story, and I promise you lots of blood and guts today and a hefty amount of torture, but how much of it is fact and how much of it is fiction? We can discount all the vampire nonsense, that's clearly not true, but did she kill young girls to bathe in their blood? Was she the most notorious female serial killer in history? Her legend has inspired generations of horror fanatics, books, movies, and countless other art forms, but I'm not so sure her reputation is deserved. To find out, let's do the history behind Elizabeth Bathory, piecing together both context and evidence to find out who she was and why she has such a deadly reputation. First, I want to go through a quick overview of Elizabeth's life before we dive deeper into the blood, the gore, and the really interesting story at the heart of this legend. We'll be calling her Elizabeth Bathory, which is how we in the West know her best, but her proper name is Elizabeth Bathory. I'll be doing my best to pronounce names and places properly, which means in Hungarian. Don't judge me too much, though. I'm an historian, not a linguist. So Elizabeth grew up in Western Hungary in the mid to late 16th century. It was a tumultuous period in Europe, as the Protestant Reformation, kicked off by the German monk Martin Luther in 1517, had led to considerable religious conflict. Not since the Great Schism of 1054, when Catholicism and Orthodoxy split into two separate entities, had Europe been so divided over religion. Those geographically closer to Rome clung to Catholicism, while emanating from Germany were variants of Protestantism. 
for Hungarians, kind of sandwiched in the middle, there was considerable conflict between the two that will serve as the backdrop to this whole story. Elizabeth herself was raised Calvinist, though others in her family were Lutherans, either way, part of Protestantism. Early tangent. So, Calvinists believe in something called predestination, which is the notion that God has already decided your fate upon your birth. It doesn't matter how devoted to your faith you are, how much love for God you have, if you do good Christian works, God's decided who he's going to save, and you can't change that fate. You won't know, of course, until you die, but that's a weird problematic religious doctrine I don't want to get into in this podcast. Oh, oh, a tangent within a tangent. Tangentception. The New England Puritans, by the way, were strict Calvinists who also believed in predestination. You know, the group who were so afraid of the devil in the New World that they hanged 19 witches in Salem in 1692? If you haven't listened to my podcast on the Salem Witch Trials, you should. You should totally check it out. But back to Elizabeth. Her family were wealthy Protestants living in a Hungary that was being torn apart on multiple fronts. First, there was the looming religious conflict between the Protestants and Catholics, but then there was also constant war with the Ottoman Turks in the South. These wars and religious tensions feature very heavily in our story. When she was 15, Elizabeth married Count Ferenc Nadozdi. Both the Batory and Nadozdi families were prominent in Hungary, though Elizabeth's family was higher up in Hungarian society, so this political marriage greatly helped Ferenc and his family. As a wedding gift, Ferenc gave his bride the castle Cheta and 17 surrounding villages, adding to her personal fortune and providing her enough tax money to continue being a rich, aristocratic woman. The two had five children, three of which survived their parents. Their first was a girl, Anna, who was born ten years after their wedding. Second was another girl, or Shoya, who died before her mother. Records aren't clear when, but most point to 1610, which means she was probably about 20 years old. Third was another girl, Kataline. Fourth was their first boy, Andrash, but he died when he was seven. And finally, another boy, Pal, who lived the longest of them all. Ferenc Nadozdi was rarely home. Shortly after his marriage, the Count went to war against the Turks. He ends up fighting them for basically his whole life, earning the nickname the Black Knight of Hungary. He was a decorated war hero, but while Ferenc was out fighting and gaining glory, his wife Elizabeth was alone at home. Though she was given Castle Chete as a gift, for the bulk of her married life, Elizabeth and the kids stayed at Sharvar Castle, the Nadozdi family home. For the geography nuts out there, Sharvar is in western Hungary, not far from the Austrian border, and pretty close to the heart of the Catholic Holy Roman Empire, Vienna. Ferenc and a close family friend, Georg Torzo, fought together against the Turks for close to three decades. In 1601, Ferenc became ill, and by 1603 was permanently disabled as a consequence of a lifetime of fighting. Knowing that life would be hard for a widowed countess, Ferenc asked friends, like Torzo, to look after her once he was gone. Ferenc died shortly after, in January of 1604. Now, it didn't take long for Elizabeth to have to fight for her lands, from the likes of Turkish fighters from the south, the Catholic Habsburg Empire and the neighboring Holy Roman Empire, and the greedy prominent families of Hungary. Elizabeth was the very picture of a noblewoman. She navigated politics and social events like a pro, the picture of a calm, composed, and put-together Hungarian widow from a prominent family. But Elizabeth had a secret, one that would cause her to become the vampiric legend we know her as today. 
one that would eventually have her arrested and locked away in Castle Cheta until she died, alone and partially forgotten. And though there's no evidence to suggest she bathed in the blood of virgin girls or drank it to become immortal, she did have a penchant for torture and murder. We're not quite sure when it started, but townsfolk around Sharvar started to notice, quote, strange goings-on between the birth of her eldest daughter Anna in 1585 and the death of her husband Ferenc in 1604. There were inner cloisters at Sharvar that were guarded so that nobody could enter, or perhaps escape from. Coffins would leave the castle under the cover of night, already sealed, which was highly unusual. The priest was usually responsible for determining the cause of death and sealing up the coffins, but that wasn't what was happening at Sharvar Castle. And when one priest questions the countess, she got mad. Another priest pulled him aside and told him that it's best not to raise the issue with her, as it will go badly for her servants. They knew. Not only did they keep count of the increasing stream of dead bodies that followed the countess, but they knew that these sealed coffins contained the bodies of her young female servants. The countess, trying to explain away the bodies, claimed that cholera had ravaged them. And while cholera was common in 16th century Hungary, even in rich households like Sharvar, it's not what was killing these girls. It was Elizabeth and a group of her followers that helped her target and torture servants. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at NemoursWellBeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. Here are the others who helped her. First, there was Anna Darvulia. Anna was a Croatian woman who lived in Sharvar and served the countess. Allegedly, it was Darvulia who taught the countess how to torture the girls. She also encouraged Elizabeth to take peasant girls, as opposed to noble ones, as it wouldn't draw too much attention from the crown. The rumors that Darvulia was running a torture and execution chamber were circulating throughout Sharvar as early as 1601, which means it likely began much earlier than that. But this was before her husband died, so he must have known about his wife's extracurricular activities, right? There's actually evidence to suggest that not only did Ferenc know about the torture and execution, he even taught Elizabeth how to use some Turkish methods. Rumor had it that Ferenc also enjoyed torturing servants, though he was reticent to kill them. He had quite the reputation as being brutal on the battlefield. He would dance on dead bodies. He would use their severed heads to play catch and kickball. Ugh. It's also alleged that Ferenc brought home a gift for Elizabeth once, a torture device of sorts that would tip your fingers with metal claws, which could be used for slashing and stabbing. Now, in addition to Darvulia, the Countess had four other helpers. First, we have Janos Fitzko Weavery, though he just went by Fitzko, so we'll call him that. Next was Ilona Yonagi, who was the wet nurse for Elizabeth and Ferenc's children, Dorotia Sentesh, a friend of Ilona, and Kataline Beneski, a washerwoman. Throughout their time together, Elizabeth and her minions tortured and killed countless servant girls, first at Sharvar, and later at Castle Cheta, and frankly, anywhere else the Countess went. 
And things started off slowly for the Countess. First, she would do small things like pinching and biting and kicking the girls. It was always because they did something wrong or didn't do something fast enough. Once, when a servant girl messed up some embroidery, the Countess stuck needles under her fingernails. The girl cried out in pain, of course, so the Countess insulted her and told her to remove the pins if they hurt so badly. But when the poor girl removed the pins, the Countess flew into a rage, beat her half to death, and cut off the girl's fingers instead. We know this, by the way, because it was in Dorotia's testimony when they were all eventually brought to court and put on trial. In addition to the fingernails, the Countess would stick pins in lips, too. Really sensitive skin there. And from there, the violence escalated to burning and cutting. It also seemed that the tortures would be worse when she worked with other people, like her husband or Anna Darvulia. But while the Countess was growing more intense and violent behind closed doors, she was becoming more magnanimous in public. She provided scholarships to Wittenberg University students studying Lutheranism. She supported Protestant clergymen. She gave out loans to her friends and fellow nobles who needed help. She paid her bills quickly. She even went to high society events. So what gives? It turns out that there's a correlation between her social events and these violent attacks. When Elizabeth would travel to high-profile events, they must have been socially exhausting, and when she turned her anger on her servants, torturing them in the carriage on the way back. When she had to entertain guests at her castle, she would take it out on the servant girls at night. She's the ultimate psychopathic introvert, I guess. Things got worse after her husband's death. Though he may have tortured servants as well, and possibly taught Elizabeth a thing or two about how to do it, he stopped her before too many people were killed. I think he was always more aware than she was that their image would be tainted if too many bodies were seen leaving the castle. Torturing to keep them in line was one thing, but murder was another. But once he died, there was no longer that mitigating influence on her rage. The killing spree intensified. Elizabeth had to juggle war with the Turks, pressure from the Catholic Habsburgs, and men like Torzo trying to steal her land. She was a woman living in a patriarchal society, one that targeted her for being a widow. And even though she was the widow of a decorated war hero, Hungary's own Black Knight, who helped save them and possibly all of Europe from the advancing Muslim forces, she wasn't safe. If a social event threw her into a rage that resulted in tortures and deaths, we can only imagine how she blew off steam from all of that stress. And as if it wasn't bad enough, a year after her husband died, her older brother Istvan Bathory died in the middle of a Transylvanian uprising against the Habsburgs. And at this, she snapped. That night, she viciously attacked three handmaidens so badly that they died of their wounds. As Elizabeth Bathory historian Kimberly Kraft writes in her book, Infamous Lady, the Countess was, quote, pushed beyond the edge of her sanity by the stress of war. There were some that did witness or at least hear what went on in the inner cloisters of Sharvar Castle. The castle warden, Benedek Bikscherdi, claims that he heard torturing sessions going for over six hours. Six hours! No wonder so many of these girls died. At first, they would die because of injuries they sustained, but as Elizabeth and her group of torturers intensified their attacks, the methods were so brutal that the girls would bleed out pretty quickly. I'm sure you have tons of questions by now. I'm sure you've wondered to yourself, if people knew this was happening, why wasn't the law ever involved? Well, here's where the politics plays in. Up to this point, the Countess and her group were targeting peasants. It was actually common for nobility to discipline, or in some instances torture, their peasant staff. The act itself wouldn't have raised any flags. 
The amount of bodies, though, would have. There were some priests who wrote letters to their superiors concerned about the amount of bodies that Elizabeth was leaving behind. One pastor, Istvan Maryari, even called the countess out during a sermon. He demanded they exhume the body of a recently dead servant girl, who of course left Charvar in a sealed coffin, to see how she died. And in response, Elizabeth stormed out in a rage. I imagine she tortured several girls that night out of anger. Nothing came of Istvan's request, and the body stayed interred. You see, there were no real legal implications for what Elizabeth was doing. Because not only did the death of peasant girls not raise any eyebrows, but the Batory and Nadozhdi families were basically bankrolling the entire Hungarian state. And the Habsburgs, for that matter. And nobody dared touch Elizabeth or her money. That is, until she opened up the Gynaceum. The Gynaceum was a finishing school for noble girls. It likely wasn't Elizabeth who came up with the idea, and we're not sure who of her merry band of torturers suggested it, but with this new boarding school came noble girls from prominent families across Hungary. Peasant parents knew of the rumors about what happened at the Countess's castles, so there were less and less peasant girls to be tortured to death. These women wouldn't want to give up their girls, knowing that they were probably going to die. But that didn't diminish the Countess's bloodlust. The noble girls suffered the same fate as their peasant counterparts. Most were tortured, and many died of their injuries. The problem, though, is that the noble families came looking for their daughters. The countess would either deny them visitation or taunt them with a view of their pale, skeletal daughters from afar. And in response, these families wrote letters to powerful men, men like the recently promoted Palatine, which is like a prime minister, Gheorghe Torzo. Some would even petition the new Hungarian king named Matyash II. Torzo and the king are growing suspicious, but still defer to the noblewoman. She's powerful, after all, even though she's a widow. And the Hungarian king owes her money, a debt they cannot, or perhaps would not, pay. Things change when the Protestant church starts to get more involved. In Chete, a new priest called Pony Kanush was suspicious of the growing number of servant girls leaving the castle. He notes that at one point, he was asked to bury nine in one night. All had apparently died from unknown and mysterious causes, and Pony Kanush went exploring in the catacombs that connected the castle and church. Underground, he found nine unsealed boxes filled with recently mutilated corpses. Disgusted, he gets the word out to Torzo, and probably also the king, because the king ends up calling for an investigation. It was the killing of these noble girls that did her in. It was a step too far that couldn't be overlooked. It was December 1610. Her youngest daughter and middle child, Cataline, was getting married. Allegedly, both Cataline and her mother tortured two girls so badly that night that they died and had to be spirited away out of the castle at night. According to an eyewitness, Elizabeth heated up a hot iron poker and forcefully inserted it into her two female victims. It appears that these weren't the only ones over the years who had been tortured this way. A few days later, Torzo goes to see her and tell her of the accusations and impending investigation. Elizabeth was her usual measure of calm when confronted by him, yet she was clearly roiling inside. Because after Torzo left, she went into a rage, torturing and killing more girls. As historian Kimberly Kraft wrote in her book, quote, The pressure of playing the gracious host, submissive wife, or enlightened noble caused a murderous rage to well up within her. Now, unfortunately for the Countess, her accomplices are getting sloppy with the body removal. Maybe there were just too many bodies, and they were running out of ways to stash them away. Maybe they were tired. Maybe a part of them wanted to be caught. 
One night, after Torza would come to visit, before the investigation officially begins, two of Elizabeth's accomplices decided to drop bodies of four recently murdered girls over the walls of Castle Chete, hoping the wolves would clean up after them. They didn't, though, so villagers discovered the bodies the next morning. Now, in years past, the villagers might have been too scared to speak out against Elizabeth. There was that one priest who spoke out, Istvan, right? But it was ignored, and nobody backed him up. But now, things are getting worse. The people in her villages likely had suspicions about what she did to the girls, but now that she was killing nobles, and they knew the Hungarian crown was coming for her, they had little reason to stay silent and loyal. The villagers who found those four bodies outside the castle walls reported it to the authorities. So when she discovered that Torzo and the king were on their way to arrest her, she sought out a forest witch named Ergi Majorova. For her whole life, Elizabeth had sought out herbal remedies, so from Ergi, Elizabeth wanted to make a potion to make herself invincible, and she also wanted to curse Torzo and the king, and they did this by baking a cake. It seems really strange to hear that, but it was commonly practiced. Witch cakes. Look them up. They're pretty unusual looking, almost like spiky donuts. In Salem, the Puritans would bake and hang witch cakes in their doors to keep witches away. This was one form of witch cakes, but the other was a kind of household dark magic. The cake would be made with all manners of poisons, and then a communion wafer would be placed in the middle. Apparently, this helped the practitioner see the person they wanted to curse. When Terzo and the king came for the countess, they found her chanting a spell over a witch cake, which she then served to them. For some reason, the men ate some of this cake, and of course they got sick because of all the junk that Elizabeth baked into it. Fitzko later testified that he thought she was trying to poison her captors. See, before all this went down, Torzo was trying to send her to a monastery to live out her life quietly, but out of prison. She'd be stripped of her land, of course, much of which Torzo wanted for himself, but perhaps he was honoring his old friend Ferenc's dying request that he look after Elizabeth and the kids. Whatever Torzo was trying to do, he knew there was no hope for the Countess now. She had tried to poison the king, and he knew it, so she was going to be put on trial. Torzo and the king leave, sick, but they organized their final arrest party to come and collect Elizabeth. The night before Torzo and his men officially come to arrest her, Elizabeth went outside to try one final spell. She brought Erce, the forest witch, with her, and a scribe. And under threat of death, she told the scribe to write down every single word she chanted. Staring into the dark sky, calling upon the stars, here's what the Countess Elizabeth Bathory summoned. Get ready for this one, it's pretty wacky. Help! Oh help, you clouds! Help, clouds! Give health! Give Elizabeth Bathory health! Send, oh send forth, you clouds, ninety cats! I command you, leader of the cats, that you hear my command and assemble them together, from wherever they may be, whether they are on the other side of the mountain, beyond the water, beyond the sea, that these ninety cats come to you, and from you should go straight into the heart of King Matyash, and also the heart of the Palatine, so that Erjabed Batari shall not suffer any grief. Holy Trinity, so it is done. See, now that's a good spell. Send a horde of astral cats to claw through the chest and chew the hearts of your enemies. Nice. When Torzo arrived the next morning, he found the bodies of dead or dying girls strewn about the castle, all victims of torture. They were beaten, burned, and stabbed. And as they searched, Torzo and his men found more bodies. They found bodies where flesh had been torn out with pliers. 
They found some girls alive, who then offered their testimonies and told Torzo's men what happened and who was responsible. He had more or less caught the Countess and her accomplices red-handed. Predictably, Elizabeth tried to pin it all on her servants. Anna Darvulia had died by this point, but Fichko, Ilona Yo, Dorotia, and Catalin were all arrested and taken to prison. Elizabeth, being a noblewoman, was imprisoned in her castle. I'll save a social commentary and rant about class and equal punishment until later. Maybe a different podcast. Now, by modern standards, what comes next will make you squint a bit, cock your head to the side, and give a suspicious, huh. But this was standard practice in the 17th century. Fichko and the others were tortured in order to extract confessions. Now, in a 21st century court of law, these tortured confessions would be thrown out and the case dismissed. However, in 17th century Europe, torture was routinely used to extract information. In fact, ever since the Spanish Inquisition began in the 15th century, guilt was assumed and you had to prove your innocence in court to save yourself. It was like this in both Catholic and Protestant Europe, and those practices carried over to the New World with the Puritans. It's part of the reason why the Salem witch trials spun out of control so quickly. One dubious accusation, despite no proper evidence, and you could be labeled as a witch. Go listen to my second episode on the Salem witch trials to hear more about that. Now, we're not sure which particular methods were used to torture Fitzko and the others, but the popular methods of the time were starvation, extreme darkness, beatings, attempted drowning, burning, stretching and pulling the body, pressing, which, by the way, was what happened to Giles Corey, for those of you who listened to the Salem episode, pinching, throttling, and twisting fingers, toes, and limbs. As a result of the torture, they all spoke in court, testifying to what they did and what the Countess did. And these testimonies survived through the years, so we have that physical evidence, which is awesome. As you might expect, the four accomplices blamed the one who was already dead for much of what happened. That's an easy cop-out. Pin it all on Honor Darvulia and the person they actually want to convict, the Countess. So here are some of the highlights from their testimonies. During Fichko's questioning, he told the court that, quote, the Countess had tortured the girls even during the lifetime of the late Lord, but not so often murdered them as now. The poor Lord spoke to her about it, but did not forbid it. Anna Darvulia came to her, and she killed the girls, and also the lady became more cruel. Ilona Yo told the court that the Countess beat them so violently that one could scoop handfuls of blood from her bed. She testified to seeing Elizabeth burn the genitals of these young girls with a candle. Dorotia claimed that Elizabeth forced the rest of them to help her kill and torture the girls, but that wasn't necessarily true. And Catalin said that she was forced to participate as well, but that she was primarily responsible for burying the bodies. It's also clear and corroborated from the other testimonies that Catalin was the only one who felt remorse about what was happening. After some of the long torture sessions, she would sneak the girls' food and try to clean them up. Many members of Elizabeth's household were called in to testify. Villagers, too, from Charvar, Chete, and other places she had lived and committed crimes. Most of the witnesses said that around 150 to 200 people were killed by the Countess and her accomplices. But one serving girl, Susanna, shocked everyone when she estimated the death toll at over 650 girls. She claims that Elizabeth kept a register of names of all of the girls she killed. But that book either never existed or has been lost to time. Therefore, as historians, we need to be wary of sources like this. She was the only one to give an estimate that high, and there's no proof to back it up, so it's likely false information too. 
the court back then must have believed the same thing because they didn't follow up and they didn't really put too much into this girl's testimony. Even if the estimate of 200 girls dead was an exaggeration, we can safely assume that at the very least, dozens of girls died, both peasant serving girls and nobles who were brought into the Countess's gynecium. Once the trial was over, the verdict was swift. Ilona Yo, Dorotia, and Fitzko were sentenced to death. Ilona Yo and Dorotia were to have their fingers on both hands torn out with heated iron tongs, and afterwards they would be executed and then burned on a bonfire. Fitzko was to be beheaded, his corpse placed on top of Ilona Yo and Dorotia on the bonfire. Curiously, Catalin was told to go back to the dungeon until more evidence was found that directly linked her to the killings. The executions happened the same day as the sentencing. They wasted no time. Ilona Yo was first. She made it until her fourth finger was wrenched off her hand before passing out. She was killed and then thrown into the fire. Having just watched her friend be tortured, Dorotia was screaming out in fear. She fainted before her turn at the execution block, but she had the same punishment doled out, fingers ripped, and then killed and burned. Fichko was last, his beheaded corpse added to the fire. Later, they tried the forest woman, Ershi Mayrova, as a witch, and she was burned at the stake. We don't know what happened to Catalin. She either died in prison or was quietly released. She disappeared from historical record at this point. When it came time to try the Countess, Torzo is hedging a bit. This was the woman that he promised his friend, Ferenc Nadozdi, the Black Knight of Hungary, his old war friend, that he would protect. And despite her apparent madness, despite knowing what she had willfully participated in, he tried to see if he could still send her to the monastery, avoiding a trial. He refused to let her testify in court, as he didn't want to tarnish the Batari and Nadozdi family names. He went to go see her when she was on house arrest in her castle, but Elizabeth was acting erratically, and Torzo loses his cool and tells her the following, quote, You, Erzabet, are like a wild animal. You are in the last months of your life. You do not deserve to breathe the air on earth or see the light of the Lord. You shall disappear from this world and shall never reappear in it again. And as the shadows envelope you, may you find time to repent your bestial life. I hereby condemn you, Lady of Cheta, to lifelong imprisonment in your own castle. So, he's clearly, like, really emotionally invested in Elizabeth. He'd known her for a long time, I guess, but to lose your cool with someone in this way suggests a personal relationship. And I don't necessarily mean a romantic one, there's no evidence to suggest that, but it's still suspicious how he acted this way. The king was initially annoyed that Torzo sentenced her to life in prison as he wanted to send her to trial, execute her, and then claim all her lands. This would also cancel his debts to the Batari and Nadozdi families, so a political move all around. But after investigating and finding out how the beloved Ferenc Nadozdi, the Black Knight of Hungary, a celebrated war hero, would also be implicated in her crimes, he dropped the investigation. It would upset the other noblemen, you see, and there were already Protestant uprisings happening throughout the country. So instead, King Matyash agrees to life imprisonment. Additionally, she would be erased from history. The king's debts to her would be cancelled, and he's also trying to get a small portion of her land. I'm sure Torzo got a bunch too, something he had been trying to swindle from the countess since her husband died. Documentation about the trial was to be sealed so the wider Hungarian court wouldn't know what she had done, her name would never be spoken again, and she was literally sealed in her castle. 
stonemasons were sent to wall her up with only a small slit in the wall to pass food and supplies in and bring waste out. She had visitors, but they slowly diminished over time. People eventually stopped visiting her. Her daughters moved on. Her son, Paul, was horrified with her crimes. Elizabeth wrote letters, but nobody answered her. For two and a half years, the Countess lived as a prisoner in her own castle of torture. She died in the early morning hours of August 2nd, 1614, completely alone. She was initially going to be buried in the church, but the people complained about interring her in holy ground, so she was instead relocated to somewhere within the Battery family estate. Nobody knows where her body rests to this day. The enduring question is, how can a noble woman, brilliant and poised like Elizabeth, do this? But do we not ask the same question of famous serial killers, like the charming Ted Bundy or family man John Wayne Gacy? Because that's the trait of a serial killer. To be calm and composed in one aspect of life, but given to the sadism and psychopathy in another. She, too, started small with her methods of torture before intensifying over time until it was an urge that could not be stopped. And she paid for it in the end with her life, though it doesn't really equal the punishment she doled out to her victims. So this is the truth as we know it about Elizabeth Bathory. She was not a vampire, and she didn't bathe in the blood of girls to maintain her youth. There was nothing supernatural here. So was she as evil as the stories make her out to be? Well, I think she falls somewhere in the middle. She wasn't a witch or a demon, but she also wasn't completely innocent. Instead, we're presented with a woman who already likely had psychopathic tendencies, egged on by negative influences, stressed out by patriarchal domination and loss, trying to survive a difficult political and social world. We're not sure what happened to her in childhood, there's a big gap there in the record. Was she brutalized as a child or as a young wife? We know that many serial killers were once victims that grew up to victimize others, so it's possible, but we lack the evidence to know for sure. We do know that Elizabeth thought she was above the law, being a noblewoman, probably the most powerful in Hungary. She even had the king in her pocket as he owed her money. I imagine the men couldn't handle having a strong, independent, widowed countess ruling over her own lands, which helps explain the constant political maneuvering to get her lands once Ferenc died. But when the time was right, and her crimes could no longer be overlooked, these men played the political game, and they won. Elizabeth lost. And the world moved on without her. Was she as bad as the stories make her out to be? We can only go with the evidence we have, and try to make sense of it within its own context, and that's what we tried to do here today. Despite the king and Torzo's best efforts, she was not lost to history. Her legacy continued, though she was made out to be a demon. Appearing in print for the first time in 1729, Elizabeth Bathory's story was sensationalized by a Jesuit scholar named Laszlo Torozzi in his book called The Tragic History. It was the first account of Bathory's case since the event took place over a hundred years beforehand. Later, in John Paget's 1850 book Hungary and Transylvania, he describes how Elizabeth Bathory would bathe in blood, killing these young girls to sustain her beauty, which we know is not true. And from there, her story became more and more supernatural. Bram Stoker would later go on to write Dracula, not too much later after, in 1897, when rumors of the Blood Countess had been established as fact, instead of the fiction we know it is today. Thanks for joining me on this adventure. This has been another episode of A Popular History of Unpopular Things. My name is Kelly Beard, and it's been my pleasure to have you along for the ride. Stay tuned for my next episode as we dive into the past to uncover the weirdest, grossest, and most mysterious stories in history.